Today we're going to continue a series that I began several weeks ago, and for those of you that may be guests with us this morning, I would encourage you, I know you're jumping in in the middle of something, I would encourage you if you desire to do so to go to our website, and we have each of the messages of this series that has been listed up to this point. But we've been doing a series on life in the family, what we can do in the light of God's direction and word to encourage health within our families, and, and not just in our families, but also in the health and life of the family of God within our church. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, there's a scripture that I want to use as a springboard today, and um, it des- describes to us to don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and for your homes. Fathers, we come before you this morning. We recognize that we need you more than we've ever needed you before. I pray that within this church, oh God, we would constantly point people to you and through your word and that there we might find health and help to grow more healthy within not only our relationships and our marriages and our families, but also, Lord, that we would grow healthier in the way that we communicate with one another within the body of Christ. Lord, we as a church make a determination that we will fight for our families and and we will fight for what is right. And we ask that you would guide us in each step of that and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message this morning is Hiding Behind These Walls. Hiding Behind These Walls. There was an old article that was written in Time magazine a number of years ago that described what they thought families would look like in the future. And this was what was described. It will be an interracial, bisexual, divided by divorce, multiplied by remarriage. The concept of illegitimate children will vanish because the nuclear family will have vanished. In fact, the nuclear family that was so popular during the 50s will be thought of as having been abnormal. There will be serial monogamy, which is one partner at a time, but several partners during a lifetime. You may get married and write into the contract that you are marrying this person for a specific period of time and that at the end of that contract, your marriage ends and you are each free to look for somebody that you think will be more compatible with you at that stage of your life. Children will have divided their loyalty between birth mothers, stepmothers, biological fathers and step-parents and ex-step-parents. Schools will have to have 24-hour support structures for children and provide sanctuary for the abused children. And then at the end, it's added, and everybody is going to be happy and well-adjusted, and life is going to be just wonderful. Talk about a nightmare. Imagine all the depravity. And yet as we look at that, even though this was written years and years ago, we are seeing segments and perspectives of that that is alive and well in the culture in which we live today. And as a result of that, we understand that as God has placed the church within this culture, that we have such difficulty establishing healthy relationships and healthy families and we oftentimes forget that God is at work to bring about health within our lives exactly where we at and so today we make the declaration that this is what we're going to do we are going to fight for your marriage we are going to fight for your children we're going to fight for the strengthening of your family 
We're going to fight for those of you who are single. We're going to fight for those of you who have been wounded. And we're going to fight for the redemption of those who find themselves in unhealthy marriages. We're going to fight because this is God's priority. And where God's presence is, there is always healing and there is always health available for you and your families. That, I believe, is what the church is for, planted within this culture today. And today we're going to look at communication. It is an unbelievably broad topic, but today I want you to know that communication within our relationships is vitally important. There are all kinds of stories about people who said one thing and it was miscommunicated. And one of the funny ones that I read was a woman who told her husband that her birthday was coming soon. And so she wanted something in the driveway that would go from zero to 200 very, very fast on her birthday. That morning she opened the window and looked out into the driveway and saw that her husband had put in the driveway a brand new bathroom scale. Communication is important. The reason that I'm addressing this topic of communication within the Life and the Family series is because it is, in, it is important for us to learn to communicate with each other in order to love and to be loved. And unless you allow someone else into your life and you open your heart to them, unless there is a sense in which somebody knows all about you and you allow yourself to be known, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it will always be difficult within a relationships for you to have the security of loving and being loved for who you are. Unless you're open with that person that you are married to, you will never truly have the love that God designed because you can never truly love a stranger. So what people do is we build these walls up in our life and we take these walls and we plant them deep in the foundations and then we live behind them. And we may find ourselves behind these walls guarding ourselves from people who would come to know us. And within these walls, though we may experience smiles and happiness and all on the outside, inside we discover that there are people that are living with deep depression They're living with anger. They're living with tremendous loneliness or secret addictions that cause them to not want to be known and they live behind these walls. But their outer persona is something that's totally different from that which is going on on their inward life. Today we're going to talk about those walls and with the help of God we're going to see the purposes and plans that he has to demolish those. There's an interesting passage of Scripture that talks about the building of the walls for protection around us, and it starts, ironically, with the very first marriage that's described within the Bible. And you all know the story of Adam and Eve, and if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to them, whether it's a book or electronically, you'll find it in Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 13. But it begins to speak to the way we live behind the walls as a consequence of sin and how it affects our relationships today. Genesis 3, verse 7, it says, And the eyes of both of them were opened. They had just experienced eating of the forbidden fruit and have just sinned together. And their eyes were both opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord called out to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman who you put with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I have performed through the years many, many weddings. And in sitting with those couples in preparation for their wedding day, and I've asked them, what are your goals and desires for your marriage? Never once have I ever had a couple say, our great goal is that we would make each other really, really miserable. Never once. Now, if they were thinking that in their hearts, they certainly never told me that it was their great goal. But through the years, it has been discouraging and fascinating to have conversations with some of those whom you had married to find out later on that they found that this relationship was not all that they thought it was going to be. And we think of the misery that exists because of the lack of healthy communication within our relationships. And there are three walls that I quickly want to describe to you this morning from Scripture. And then we will conclude with how God desires to demolish them. And if you have an outline or you have your bulletin, there's an outline there. And the walls are the wall of shame and guilt, the wall of fear, and the wall of defensiveness and self-protection. First of all, the wall of guilt and shame. God, when he was addressing Adam after sin had entered in and suddenly there's this shame that enters into his life and he hides from God and God finally calls him out and he said why did you hide from him and Adam says because I was naked and God addresses him instantly and said who told you that you were naked sin brings shame and shame is one of the most powerful emotions that we can ever experience what do they do when they are filled with shame the first thing that they do is they try to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord and in fact it becomes a precursor to trying to hide themselves from one another as well they begin the process of of trying to build a wall so that their shame will not be seen by anyone else shame will always produce a barrier that is going to make communication very difficult even in the best of marriages So I was doing some studying about this. I discovered that there was two types of shame that could be mentioned with this. One of them is imposed shame. Some of you, as I begin to speak about this, are instantly going to recognize that this probably is a good description of the background in which you come from. Because some of you grew up in homes that were shame-based homes. In those homes, generally, there was systematic abuse that took place either of between mom and dad or among the children alcoholism or all kinds of secrets that you as a family had and as a result there was such shame associated with your home that you built a wall around yourself and you never let anyone in because shame was the circumstance in which you lived and you just didn't want anyone to know another kind of imposed shame that we discover is rampant today is how comfortable your families were as you were growing up in addressing in a family setting or in a parental setting topics such as human sexuality. There was a commercial, I think I may have seen it for the first time during the Super Bowl. 
It was an e-assurance uh, commercial where there's a guy and his son that are driving in the car. The car broke down on the side of the road, and while they're waiting for the tow truck to come, the father says, well, um, I've been wanting to have this discussion with you, and, and you know, you're getting to the age, son, where there are certain urges, and the boy begins to roll his eyes and feel really uncomfortable, and, and the father just doesn't know where to go with this, and suddenly there's a ding on his phone, and the tow truck is almost there, and, and that gives such a great description of the uncomfortableness that we begin to live with in some of these areas. And as a result of that, we, we become people that stick something that God intended to be discussed within the home in the closet of secrecy. And then we wonder when our children grow up and they find this imposed shame upon them because it was something that though God created it within the family, it was just never talked about. And there's this imposed shame. One question that I ask just about every couple that I've ever counseled with prior to them getting married is, I have them describe to me where you learned about sex from. And I can tell you that oftentimes that question is met with uncomfortable laughter. In fact, many of them, the vast majority of them would say things such as this, well, we weren't allowed to talk about that in my household. That was something that we didn't discuss. If I ever tried to bring that up with mom and dad, it was just, you know, figure it out on your own. And as a result of that, the answers to that question many times because I learned about human sexuality from my friends or I learned about it in the movies or I learned about it in some sense from school. The vast minority of people will say, we had a healthy discussion about that and a place of great communication within my own family. And as a result of that, there seems to be, as you begin to talk about this, imposed shame in communication. A number of years ago, I was with one of my friends who's a district youth director in the South, and uh, his daughter and, and two sons were young adults, and his daughter was about to get married to a preacher's kid from their district who was a wonderful young man, and, and he was doing the pre-marriage counseling with them, and I admired him for that. That's a hard discussion to have when it's your own kids. But as he was talking with him, he spoke to his son-in-law, and he said, now, now tell me a little bit about what your family was like as it related to talking about sexuality. And he looked at him, and he goes, I don't know anything. My, my mom and dad said, that's just not something we talked about. And we kind of lived in an area that, that was shameful. And he looked at his daughter, and he says, I have raised you far too well to let you get married to somebody who doesn't know anything. And so he had some very frank and wonderfully open discussions and their children have a wonderful marriage today because he says, I choose not to let this be an imposed shame on the communication of families. And I do believe that God would have us in our communication within our own families understand how to be honest and truthful in our communication. There's another shame which is an actual shame as well. It's a shame for which you and I are responsible because all of the things that we have actually done that, it, that has caused us to live in conflict with God's righteous law and his love and it creates within us a power of shame for the things we've done. In fact, I've often thought, could you imagine if every one of us had the ability and the power to read everybody else's thoughts around you? Church as we know it would never exist again. You would never want to come to a place where if every thought that you had was widely known by everybody, you would just, it would just wouldn't happen. We'd run for the hills because of the shame. And that is a first barrier, is the barrier, the wall of shame that so many live behind. 
Then there's also a wall of fear. You'll notice that Adam said in verse 10, speaking to God, I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And you think, what was, what was Adam afraid of? I think it very clearly indicates that he was afraid of rejection. First, that I'm going to be rejected by God, and then I might be rejected by Eve. We have this fear of being overly exposed, which is what he said, which is both a physical and, and you know, also a philosophical statement. I don't want to be too exposed to people. The fear of knowing that if people really knew who you are, exactly who you are, that they would be shocked and they would want to befriend somebody else and ignore you. That's the kind of fear that's tied with shame and it's deep and it's debilitating. And then, of course, sometimes ideas that we communicate in relationships only increase our fear and sometimes they increase the fear within our own homes. I had a conversation with a man on the phone and we had spoken many times and he shared this with me. He said, Pastor... My wife has told me and repeated it often through our marriage that if I ever cheated on her, she would leave me and that would be the end of our marriage. Now, undoubtedly, as he began to express this to me, his wife had told him this with the best of motives and the best of intentions, thinking if I can just let him know what the consequences of his sin would be, it will be a deterrent to him. And as a result of that, he will never think about that because he'll know the deterrent. But what it really communicates deep down inside is this. I want you to know that you're married to an unforgiving person. And that the consequences, if you blow it or you make a mistake, and I find out about it, it will end in disaster and effectively closes off the ability to have honest communication within a marriage. The problem with that is every one of us are flawed. There is no perfect individual that enters into a relationship. And so by the very words that we communicate, we can sever the ability to tear down the walls because we are so fearful of what will happen if I really let myself be known. I was speaking to a college professor at one of our Assembly of God schools who before he became a, pe- a, a, a professor had been a pastor in one of our churches. And he was sharing with me, he said, I came to recognize as I was pastoring that my attention was being focused on one particular lady in our church more than it should be. He said, I begin to recognize I'm thinking about her way too much. And he was a married man at the time, and he went before the Lord and and said, Lord, what should I do about this? I I don't want this to be a problem, and yet you know my thoughts and you know my heart in this. And he said, I felt in prayer the Lord say, you immediately go and talk to your wife about this. And so he obeyed. And he sat down with his wife, and he had a very open and honest conversation with her about that. And his wife, being the godly woman that she was, took the information and didn't see it as a threat to her and didn't see it as a threat to their relationship. But she understood that her husband loved her enough to have an honest communication about something that he was going through, and she recognized God at that moment in time, called her to be his protector, and to respect the honesty with which he had approached her with. And she was wise enough to know the difference between honest communication and rejection. And in an instant, the enemy lost his power in that situation because of the honesty of bringing it into the light. Fear causes us to feel rejected. And what do rejected people do? 
They begin to create circumstances in which they will perpetuate their rejection. And you and I have met people like this. They are rejected and they are angry, so they say to themselves, I'm going to make sure that nobody is ever going to accept me. If salvation has to back away, and then they say, See, you're just like everybody else. And you have rejected me as well. Nobody loves me. So I can never be in a relationship. Or they go into deep isolation and they live within their walls. And what they are doing is saying, Nobody will ever penetrate the walls of my fear. Here I will live and no one will ever hurt me again. So you have rejection. And Adam and Eve, when confronted, it says they hid themselves from the presence of God for fear of his rejection. So we either live with our secrets and we live behind the walls of fear or we push people away that want to get close to us or we have to come to the Lord and say, only you, Father, can help me begin to deal with the wall of fear. But there's something else that was brought up within our text and it was the wall of defensiveness and self-protection. And this is big. Throughout the years, I've become very interested in human behavior because I know something about my own heart. I'm endlessly fascinated with all the different ways that we have to protect ourselves. And we're really good at it. It's one of those acquired skills that we learn early. As a matter of fact, there's a book that the pastoral staff and the board and I are going through together right now, and it's written by Lance Witt, and it's called Replenish. One of the chapters in that book is called Image Management, and I probably have underlined almost the whole chapter. This is when our inner world becomes separated from our outer world, and we begin to discover that the image must be better than the reality. And as a result of that, one of the ways that people do this in image management is to blame others for what they've done and so in fact if you're an addict or you're actually to the point where you 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 don't accept responsibility anymore everything that's happened in your life is always somebody else's fault it's your employer's fault or it's your wife's fault or it's the kid's fault or it's the cat's fault it's somebody else's fault because you've made yourself immune from blame They see the evil in their hearts as belonging to somebody else. It's not theirs. And so I am managing my image that everything wrong with me is somebody else's fault. And we can already see this attitude developing in the very first human relationship. The first thing that Adam and Eve do right after they sin is they sew fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. And as you look at this, you begin to recognize their very first action that they took after guilt and shame into their life was to instantly manage their image in self-protection to make them look better to each other, even though they were the only two people on the face of the earth. And God comes to Adam. And he says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? How many of you have a circumstance in your life that you said, if I had it to live over again, I would do it differently? Any of you? Eight of you. I often wonder if if this were to be replayed, if Adam wouldn't start here and say, yes, I wish I had just looked at the Lord and said, yes, Lord, I did, and I'm guilty. But that's not what he did. When confronted by the Lord as to his sin, he instantly started with, well, the woman you gave me. Lord, it's this weak-willed woman 
that you gave me. She took of the tree, and what's a man supposed to do when his wife comes and says, here's the meal? She'd be so hurt if I didn't eat what she picked for me. So I ate it with her. I want you to know that the man blamed his wife, listen to this, even though there wasn't a chance in the world that he had married the wrong woman. Now listen closely to this. You can marry the right person and still have communication issues. You can marry the right person and still find it a struggle to communicate well with one another. So God looks at this and says, okay, fine, it's the woman. And he goes to her, and he talks to the woman, and what does, he say? And what does she say? Well, Lord, it's the serpent, it, that serpent that you put out there. And so the man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. I've been waiting for that one all morning. I couldn't wait to get to this part. I'll let that just sink in. And that's the way the story of the human race goes up to now. We refuse responsibility. We're very anxious to protect ourselves. We tweak everything to manage our image. What we want us to do is to make sure that we look better than what we are. And all of us do that. But when we hide from our mates or when we hide in relationships and we hide inside these walls, we can never truly love and we can never truly be loved. So what's God's solution? The Lord immediately started with a solution to this when he begins to speak in verse 15, speaking to the serpent, and he said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The earliest promise of salvation in the gospel came as a result of people trying to live behind the walls of fear and shame and self-preservation. And God says, I'm going to bring about a descendant. And the best that the enemy is going to be able to do is just to bruise his heel, but he will crush the head of the enemy. And we look at that in light of this context, and we say, man, that's wonderful. But we knew that it was going to take thousands of years before Jesus came, and, and all of that was fulfilled. Meanwhile, are Adam and Eve going to have to wait? What, what's going to happen to them? And God says, no, I have something for you right now that's going to help you, something for you in anticipation of the fact that Christ is coming. Because they had tried to manage their image with one another by covering up their bodies with leaves that they were sewing together. The only two people on the face of the earth standing there together that God had created to be, and instantly when shame entered in, they had to protect themselves. And so they're making leaves. First close. Because there already began to be a wall of separation. And frankly, the description of what they made was a symbol of an inward heart issue that sin had caused. Sin will always try to separate you from good communication. Always try to force you behind the walls. And in fact, if you get to verse 21, you'll notice the, the scripture says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. God said, No longer do you need to wear fig leaves because fig leaves don't cover enough. What you need are clothes to put on so that your shame is hidden and it's covered. That's what Jesus Christ does for us. He takes the shame that you and I experience and he covers it and he cleanses it and he removes it so that we no longer have to live with it or deal with it again. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And then there are these words that I would encourage you to underline in your Bible. Despising its shame. In other words... He looks at you and says, I know that you've lived behind this wall of shame, and I know that you've lived behind this wall of fear, but I want you to know that I have come to shame shame. I've come to destroy that for you. And Rodney Clapp, who's an author that's written a lot of books about the family, says this, does shame bind us? Jesus was bound. Does shame destroy our reputation? He was despised and rejected of men. Does shame reduce us to silence? He is led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, he opens not his mouth. Does shame expose our apparent weakness? They said of him, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Does shame lead us to abandonment? Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does shame diminish us? He was crucified naked, and exposed for gawkers to see. Jesus comes, and he rectifies our relationship with God, and he covers the shame, and the skins of the animals that God used in the Old Testament show clearly that while the animals were killed by God to provide protection for them, they were merely a foreshadowing, a prefiguring of the coming of Jesus that would set us free from the shame and the guilt that we've had to live behind for so long. You say, well, what does that do to our relationships? That's fine that God provides for all of that in the relationship with him and that that relationship is restored, but what about my relationship with my wife or my husband or my children or my brothers and sisters? I'd like to suggest that it's the forgiveness of God, the grace of God that gives us the strength and the enablement to create an environment in our homes where fresh, clean, clear communication can take place. Rodney Clapp again said, the cross creates a community of people who are no longer afraid of being defined and destroyed by shame and could admit their failures and allow for their neediness and be known. I want to conclude with a story of two people that I'm going to call them Ned and Nancy. The names are fictitious, but the story isn't. Ned was a busy businessman. He was the deacon at his church. His wife worked with the young people in the church, and their children were actively involved in the church. His business had kept him to the place where he found himself in a season of life where he was unable to be at home as much as he wanted. As a result of that, there began to be a strain in the relationship between he and Nancy and There came a moment in time where the youth group was going to be taking a trip to go and help a small church with some evangelism outreach that was taking place. And so she, being one of the chaperones, went along. And while they were on the bus trip to get out there, she sat next to another male chaperone, and they began to talk. And after a while, her loneliness and his loneliness began to pour out in conversation that would be inappropriate. During that weekend, they began to talk among themselves, and they made plans why don't we get together a little bit later on in one of our hotel rooms and we can discuss this further. And before the weekend was over, they had committed adultery. The next Sunday as they came back to church together, they began to recognize, she began to recognize the unbelievable power of guilt that had entered into her life. 
She said, how can, I, how can I sit here and pretend to worship? How can I pretend to parent my children in a righteous way? How can I pretend to be a loving, caring wife when I'm carrying around this massive, this massive guilt of what I have done? Ned began to recognize the distance that was taking place between them. He kept asking her, is everything okay? Is everything okay? Everything's fine. Everything's fine. But he knew something was wrong. And as they attended church one Sunday morning, they came to the place where the pastor was speaking about having families come to the altar together to pray. And as they came that morning together, they recognized that it was going to take a far longer conversation than just one at the altar together. And they went home together that afternoon and decided to let the children go and play at some friends so that they could talk. And here's how Ned started that discussion. He said, Nancy, I know something is wrong. I know something is wrong. You're not the same person, and I don't know what it is, but he said this to her. All I want you to know is this. Whatever it is, I want you to know before you tell me, I have already forgiven you. I have already forgiven you. And in the freedom of grace, she was able to unburden her heart and say what he has done and then he began to pour out his heart of all of the things that had brought a failure to their marriage that he had brought and in the arena of grace the walls begin to be torn down and God began to shine a light of a pathway of reconciliation that they have taken and I want you to know that they are doing great today the love and forgiveness of Christ was evident in their desire to tear down the walls and the desire to say, whatever it takes, God's grace can help us. If he can forgive the shame, then we can forgive one another and our families and our lives and our marriages can be restored. 